Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Eight Strokes of the Clock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Eight Strokes of the Clock by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 7, Part 1 Footprints in the Snow. To Prince Sergenin, Boulevard Haussmann, Paris. Baroncière, near Bassicou, 14th of November. My dear friend, you must be thinking me very ungrateful. I have been here three weeks, and you have had not one letter from me, not a word of thanks. And yet, I ended by realizing from what terrible death you saved me, and understanding the secret of that terrible business. But indeed, indeed, I couldn't help it. I was in such a state of prostration after it all. I needed rest and solitude so badly. Was I to stay in Paris? Was I to continue my expeditions with you? No, no, no. I had had enough adventures. Other peoples are very interesting, I admit. But when one is oneself the victim, and barely escapes with one's life, oh, my dear friend, how horrible it was! Shall I ever forget it? Here, at La Ronciere, I enjoy the greatest peace. My old spinster cousin, Hermeline, pats and cuddles me like an invalid. I am getting back my collar, and am very well physically. So much so, in fact, that I no longer ever think of interesting myself in other people's business. Never again. For instance, I am only telling you this because you are incorrigible, as inquisitive as any old charwoman, and always ready to busy yourself with things that don't concern you. Yesterday I was present at a rather curious meeting. Antoinette had taken me to the inn at Bassicourt, where we were having tea in the public room, among the peasants, it was market-day, when the arrival of three people, two men and a woman, caused a sudden pause in the conversation. One of the men was a fat farmer, in a long blouse, with a jovial, red face, framed in white whiskers. The other was young, was dressed in corduroy, and had lean, yellow, cross-grained features. Each of them carried a gun, slung over his shoulder. Between them was a short, slender young woman, in a brown cloak and a fur cap, whose rather thin and extremely pale face was surprisingly delicate and distinguished-looking. "'Father, son, and daughter-in-law,' whispered my cousin, what can that charming creature be the wife of that clodhopper and the daughter-in-law of baron de gorne is the old fellow over there a baron yes descended from a very ancient noble family which used to own the chateau in the old days he has always lived like a peasant a great hunter a great drinker a great litigant always at law with somebody now very nearly ruined his son Matthias was more ambitious and less attached to the soil, and studied for the bar. Then he went to America. Next, the lack of money brought him back to the village, whereupon he fell in love with a young girl in the nearest town. The poor girl consented, no one knows why, to marry him. And for five years past she has been leading the life of a hermit, or rather, of a prisoner, in a little manor-house close by, the Manoir au Puy, the well-manor. "'With the father and the son?' I asked. "'No. The father lives at the far end of the village, on a lonely farm. 
And is Master Matthias jealous? A perfect tiger. Without reason? Without reason, for Nathalie de Gorne is the straightest woman in the world, and it is not her fault if a handsome young man has been hanging around the manor-house for the past few months. However, the de Gorne can't get over it. What, the father neither? The handsome young man is the last descendant of the people who bought the chateau long ago. This explains old de Gorne's hatred. Jérôme Vignal, I know him, and am very fond of him, is a good-looking fellow, and very well off, and he has sworn to run off with Nathalie de Gorne. It's the old man who says so, whenever he has had a drop too much. There, listen. The old chap was sitting among a group of men, who were amusing themselves by making him drink, and plying him with questions. He was already a little bit on, and was holding forth with a tone of indignation and a mocking smile, which formed the most comic contrast. "'He's wasting his time, I tell you, the coxcomb. It's no manner of use he's poaching round our way, and making ship's eyes at the wench. The coverts are watched. If he comes too near, it means a bullet. Hey, Matthias?' He gripped his daughter-in-law's hand. "'And then the little wench knows how to defend herself, too,' he chuckled. "'Eh, you don't want any admirers, do you, Nathalie?' The young wife blushed, in her confusion at being addressed in these terms, while her husband growled. "'You'd do better to hold your tongue, father. There are things one doesn't talk about in public.' "'Things that affect one's honour are best settled in public,' retorted the old one. "'Where I'm concerned, the honour of the de Gohan comes before everything.' and that fine spark with his Paris ears, shunt, he stopped short. Before him stood a man, who had just come in, and who seemed to be waiting for him to finish his sentence. The newcomer was a tall, powerfully built young fellow, in riding kit, with a hunting crop in his hand. His strong and rather stern face was lighted up by a pair of fine eyes, in which shone an ironical smile. Jérôme Vignal, whispered my cousin, the young man seemed not at all embarrassed. On seeing Nathalie, he made a low bow, and when Matthias de Gornes took a step forward, he eyed him from head to foot, as though to say, Well, what about it? And his attitude was so haughty and contemptuous, that the de Gornes unslung their guns, and took them in both hands, like sportsmen about to shoot. The son's expression was very fierce. Jérôme was quite unmoved by the threat. After a few seconds, Turning to the innkeeper, he remarked, "'Oh, I say, I came to see old Vasseur, but his shop is shut. Would you mind giving him the holster of my revolver? It wants a stitch or two.' He handed the holster to the innkeeper, and added, laughing, "'I'm keeping the revolver, in case I need it. You never can tell.' Then, still very calmly, he took a cigarette from a silver case, lit it, and walked out. We saw him through the window, vaulting on his horse and riding off at a slow trot. Old de Gorn tossed off a glass of brandy, swearing most horribly. His son clapped his hand to the old man's mouth and forced him to sit down. Nathalie de Gorn was weeping beside them. That's my story, dear friend. As you see, it's not tremendously interesting and does not deserve your attention. There's no mystery in it and no part for you to play. Indeed, I particularly insist that you should not seek a pretext for any untimely interference. Of course, I should be glad to see the poor thing protected. She appears to be a perfect martyr. But, as I said before, let us leave other people to get out of their own troubles, 
and go no farther in our little experiments. Renin finished reading the letter, read it over again, and ended by saying, That's it. Everything's right as right can be. She doesn't want to continue our little experiments, because this would make the seventh, and because she's afraid of the eighth, which, under the terms of our agreement, has a very particular significance. She doesn't want to, and she does want to, without seeming to want to. He rubbed his hands. The letter was an invaluable witness to the influence which he had gradually, gently and patiently gained over Hortense Daniel. It betrayed a rather complex feeling, composed of admiration, unbounded confidence, uneasiness at times, fear and almost terror, but also love. He was convinced of that. His companion in adventures, which she shared with a good fellowship that excluded any awkwardness between them, she had suddenly taken fright, and a sort of modesty, mingled with a certain coquetry, was impelling her to hold back. That very evening, Sunday, Renin took the train. And, at break of day, after covering by diligence on a road white with snow, the five miles between the little town of Pompignat, where he alighted, and the village of Bassicourt, he learned that his journey might prove of some use. Three shots had been heard, during the night, in the direction of the Manoir au Puy. Three shots, sergeant! I heard them as plainly as I see you standing before me,' said a peasant, whom the gendarmes were questioning in the parlour of the inn which Renin had entered. "'So did I,' said the waiter. Three shots. It may have been twelve o'clock at night. The snow, which had been falling since nine, had stopped, and the shots sounded across the fields, one after the other. Bang! 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 Five more peasants gave their evidence. The sergeant and his men had heard nothing, because the police station backed on the fields. But a farm laborer and a woman arrived, who said that they were in Matthias de Gorn's service, that they had been away for two days because of the intervening Sunday, and that they had come straight from the manor-house, where they were unable to obtain admission. "'The gate of the grounds is locked, sergeant,' said the man. "'It's the first time I've known this to happen. Monsieur Matthias comes out to open it himself.' every morning at the stroke of six, winter and summer. Well, it's past eight now. I called and shouted. Nobody answered. So we came on here. You might have inquired at old Monsieur de Gons, said the sergeant. He lives on the high road. On my word, so I might. I never thought of that. We'd better go there now, the sergeant decided. Two of his men went with him, as well as the peasants and a locksmith, whose services were called into requisition. Renin joined the party. Soon, at the end of the village, they reached old de Gorn's farmyard, which Renin recognized by Hortense's description of its position. The old fellow was harnessing his horse and trap. When they told him what had happened, he burst out laughing. Three shots! Bang, bang, bang! Why, my dear sergeant, there are only two barrels to Matthias' gun! What about the locked gate? It means that the lad's asleep, that's all. Last night he came and cracked a bottle with me, perhaps two, or even three, and he'll be sleeping it off, I expect. He and Natalie. He climbed onto the box of his trap, an old cart with a patched tilt, and cracked his whip. Goodbye, gentlemen, all. Those three shots of yours won't stop me from going to the market at Pompignat, as I do every Monday. I have a couple of calves under the tilt, and they're just fit for the butcher. Good day to you. The others walked on. Renin went up to the sergeant, and gave him his name. 
I'm a friend of Mademoiselle Hermeline, of La Ronciere, and it's too early to call on her yet. I shall be glad if you'll allow me to go round by the manor with you. Mademoiselle Hermeline knows Madame de Gorne, and it will be a satisfaction to me to relieve her mind, for there's nothing wrong at the manor house, I hope. If there is, replied the sergeant, we shall read all about it as plainly as on a map because of the snow. He was a likable young man, and seemed smart and intelligent. From the very first, he had shown great acuteness in observing the tracks which Matthias had left behind him the evening before on returning home, tracks which soon became confused with the footprints made in going and coming by the farm laborer and the woman. Meanwhile, they came to the walls of a property of which the lotsmith readily opened the gate. From here onward, a single trail appeared upon the spotless snow, that of Matthias, and it was easy to perceive that the son must have shared largely in the father's libations, as the line of footprints described sudden curves which made it swerve right up to the trees of the avenue. Two hundred yards farther stood the dilapidated two-storied building of the Manoir Puy. The principal door was open. "'Let's go in,' said the sergeant. And the moment he had crossed the threshold, he muttered, "'Oh, old de Gorn made a mistake in not coming. They've been fighting in here.' The big room was in disorder. Two shattered chairs, the overturned table, and much broken glass and china bore witness to the violence of the struggle. The tall clock, lying on the ground, had stopped at twenty past eleven. With the farm girl showing them the way, they ran up to the first floor. Neither Matthias nor his wife was there. But the door of their bedroom had been broken down with a hammer which they discovered under the bed. Renin and the sergeant went downstairs again. The living room had a passage communicating with the kitchen, which lay at the back of the house, and opened on a small yard fenced off from the orchard. At the end of this enclosure was a well, near which one was bound to pass. Now, from the door of the kitchen to the well, the snow, which was not very thick, had been pressed down to this side and that, as though a body had been dragged over it and all around the well were tangled traces of trampling feet, showing that the struggle must have been resumed at this spot. The sergeant again discovered Matthias' footprints, together with others which were shapelier and lighter. These latter went straight into the orchard, by themselves, and thirty yards on, near the footprints, a revolver was picked up, and recognized by one of the peasants as resembling that which Jérôme Vignal had produced in the inn two days before. The sergeant examined the cylinder. Three of the seven bullets had been fired. And so the tragedy was little by little reconstructed in its main outlines. And the sergeant, who had ordered everybody to stand aside and not to step on the side of the footprints, came back to the well, leaned over, put a few questions to the farm girl, and going up to Renin whispered, It all seems fairly clear to me. Renin took his arm. Let's speak out plainly, sergeant. I understand the business pretty well, for, as I told you, I know Mademoiselle Hermeline, who is a friend of Jérôme Vignal's, and also knows Madame de Gorne. Do you suppose? I don't want to suppose anything. I simply declare that someone came there last night. By which way? The only tracks of a person coming towards the manor are those of Monsieur de Gorne. That's because the other person arrived before the snowfall, that is to say, before nine o'clock. Then he must have hidden in a corner of the living room, and waited for the return of Monsieur de Gorne, who came after the snow. Just so. As soon as Matthias came in, the men went for him. 
there was a fight. Matthias made his escape through the kitchen. The men ran after him to the well and fired three revolver shots. And where's the body? Down the well. Henin protested. Oh, I say, aren't you taking a lot for granted? Why, sir, the snow's there to tell the story. And the snow plainly says that, after the struggle, after the three shots, one man alone walked away and left the farm. One man only, and his footprints are not those of Matthias de Gorn. Then, where can Matthias de Gorn be? But the well can be dragged? No. The well is practically bottomless. It is known all over the district and gives its name to the manor. So you really believe? I repeat what I say. Before the snowfall, a single arrival, Matthias, and a single departure, the stranger. And Madame de Gorn? Was she too killed and thrown down the well like her husband? No, carried off. Carried off? Remember that her bedroom was broken down with a hammer. Come, come, sergeant. You yourself declared that there was only one departure, the stranger's. Stoop down. Look at the men's footprints. See how they sink into the snow until they actually touch the ground. Those are the footprints of a man laden with a heavy burden. The stranger was carrying Madame de Gorn on his shoulder. Then there's an outlet this way? Yes, a little door, of which Matthias de Gorn always had the key on him. The man must have taken it from him. A way out into the open fields? Yes, a road which joins the departmental highway three-quarters of a mile from here. And do you know where? Where? At the corner of the chateau. Jérôme Vignal's chateau? By Jove, this is beginning to look serious. If the trail leads to the chateau and stops there, we shall know where we stand. The trail did continue to the chateau, as they were able to perceive after following across the undulating fields on which the snow lay heaped in places. The approach to the main gates had been swept, but they saw that another trail, formed by the two wheels of a vehicle, was running in the opposite direction to the village. The sergeant rang the bell. The porter, who had also been sweeping the drive, came to the gates, with a broom in his hand. In answer to a question, the men said that Monsieur Vignal had gone away that morning, before anyone else was up, and that he himself had harnessed the horse to the trap. "'In that case,' said Renin, when they had moved away, "'all we have to do is to follow the tracks of the wheels.' "'That will be no use,' said the sergeant. "'They have taken the railway.' "'At Pompignat Station, where I came from? "'But they would have passed through the village. "'They have gone just the other way, because it leads to the town, "'where the express trains stop.' The procurator-general has an office in the town. I'll telephone. And, as there's no train before eleven o'clock, all that they need to do is to keep a watch at the station. I think you're doing the right thing, sergeant, said Renin, and I congratulate you on the way in which you have carried out your investigation. They parted. Renin went back to the inn in the village and sent a note to Hortense Daniel by hand. My very dear friend, I seem to gather from your letter that, touched as always by anything that concerns the heart, you were anxious to protect the love affair of Jérôme and Nathalie. Now, there is every reason to suppose that these two, without consulting their fair protectress, have run away, after throwing Matthias de Gorn down a well. Forgive me for not coming to see you. The whole thing is extremely obscure. And, if I were with you, I should not have the detachment of mind which is needed to think the case over. It was then half-past ten. Renin went for a walk into the country, with his hands clasped behind his back, and without vouchsafing a glance at the exquisite spectacle of the white meadows. 
He came back for lunch, still absorbed in his thoughts, and indifferent to the talk of the customers of the inn, who on all sides were discussing recent events. He went up to his room, and had been asleep some time, when he was awakened by a tapping at the door. He got up and opened it. "'Is it you? Is it you?' he whispered. Hortense and he stood, gazing at each other for some seconds, in silence, holding each other's hands, as though nothing, no irrelevant thought and no utterance, must be allowed to interfere with the joy of their meeting. Then he asked, "'Was I right in coming?' "'Yes,' she said, gently. "'I expected you.' "'Perhaps it would have been better if you had sent for me sooner, instead of waiting.' Events did not wait, you see and I don't quite know what's to become of Jérôme Vignal and Nathalie de Gorne. "'What? Haven't you heard?' she said quickly. "'They've been arrested. They were going to travel by the express.' "'Arrested? No,' Renin objected. "'People are not arrested like that. They have to be questioned first. "'That's what's being done now. The authorities are making a search.' "'Where?' "'At the chateau. And, as they are innocent—for they are innocent, aren't they? "'You don't admit that they are guilty any more than I do?' he replied, "'I admit nothing. I can admit nothing, my dear. Nevertheless, I am bound to say that everything's against them, except one fact, which is that everything is too much against them. It is not normal for so many proofs to be heaped up one on top of the other, and for the man who commits a murder to tell his story so frankly. Apart from this, there's nothing but mystery and discrepancy. Well, well, I'm greatly puzzled.' But you have a plan? None at all, so far. Ah, if I could see him, Jérôme Vignal, and her, Nathalie de Gorne, and hear them, and know what they are saying in their own defence. But you can understand that I shan't be permitted either to ask them any questions or to be present at their examination. Besides, it must be finished by this time. It's finished at the chateau, she said, but it's going to be continued at the manor house. "'Are they taking them to the manor-house?' he asked eagerly. "'Yes. At least, judging by what was said to the chauffeur of one of the procurator's two cars.' "'Oh, in that case,' exclaimed Renin, "'the thing's done. The manor-house. Why, we shall be in the front row of the stalls. We shall see and hear everything.' And, as a word, a tone of voice, a quiver of the eyelids will be enough to give me the tiny clue I need. We may entertain some hope. Come along.' He took her by the direct route which he had followed that morning, leading to the gate which the locksmith had opened. The gendarmes on duty at the manor-house had made a passage through the snow, beside the line of footprints and around the house. Chance enabled Renin and Hortense to approach unseen, and through a side window to enter a corridor near a back staircase. A few steps up was a little chamber, which received its only light through a sort of bull's-eye from the large room on the ground floor. Renin, during the morning visit, had noticed the bull's-eye, which was covered on the inside with a piece of cloth. He removed the cloth and cut out one of the panes. End of chapter 7, part 1